0: Welcome to the Lab Life Podcast, a candid insight into the life of an undergraduate researcher. I'm your host, Richard Song. I'm an aspiring research scientist and undergraduate student at Vanderbilt University studying computer science, applied math, and neuroscience. In this series, I invite you along my weekly research journey and your lessons I've learned in the lab. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 2, Starting Your Research Project. Last episode, we talked about how to get a position as an undergraduate research assistant in a research lab. But once you get that role, how should you begin? In part one of this episode, we talk about coming up with a research project that best fits your interests, how to actually get started with your project, and defining expectations for your project with your mentor. In part 2, I talk about my weekly research updates at Boys Town, including the specific research project that I will be working on this summer involving working memory and transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS. So without further ado, let's discuss. So you listened to last episode, and you finally got that research position in the lab that you always wanted to get into. Congratulations! Your mentor will probably give you a lot of suggestions for research projects that you may be interested in. And this may seem overwhelming, especially if they give you more than five different projects to choose from. What I recommend is take your time deciding. This is so important. A lot of people that I know get their research project and maybe take one or two day max to make their decision about whether they want to pursue this project or not. I recommend you take your time. This is a very important decision for you, especially if research is something that is really pivotal to your undergraduate experience, or you want it to be that way. You need to take the time to really understand what you're getting yourself into before starting your project in the first place. Now, what should you be doing when you take your time? Well, your professor will send you a lot of articles, posters, videos, or other web pages in general that will help you understand the research project a little clearer. And obviously you should really take your time to read these pieces of work. What I recommend you do, and this is a hack that I did, is start with the posters from previous undergraduate students if possible. Undergraduate students a lot of time over the summer will do summer research projects which will culminate in a poster presentation. I recommend That you start with these posters. This is because undergraduates don't necessarily have as much experience as professors, postdocs, or PhD students, so when they write their poster, they won't use necessarily as advanced terminology or lingo that a professor or a postdoc will do that may seem really overwhelming. And because of that, their poster will likely be much easier to understand than if it was written from someone like a professor, and moreover, the undergraduate student is in the same boat as you and has roughly the same amount of research experience, meaning that it's much easier to digest their project and really understand what they're doing. If possible, I also recommend that you try to reach out to that undergraduate student who created the poster and really ask them about their project. Ask them about the time expectations and the amount of time that they devoted to that project. What were some of the limitations when completing that project? Or what necessary steps will be needed to take next to really take that project to the next level? When you reach out to that undergraduate and ask such questions like this, it really helps you see whether that project can suit you. And moreover, that undergraduate is more likely to relate to you than if you were going to reach out to someone that's much older. So you can really understand that project, hopefully from a better point of view. After you've reached out to the undergraduate who created a poster, if possible, I recommend that you read the papers and the articles that your professor sent to you that are related to the research project that you will be embarking on. Try your best to understand the methodology, the results, and the discussion section of all these papers. I'll post a later episode in the future talking about what's the best way to read papers, but for now, try to best understand the methodology, results, and the discussion. The reason why this is important is because it helps you understand how researchers in the past have conducted that research project, the methodology, what they found, the results, and what they got out of and how they interpreted those results, the discussion. At first, it may seem really overwhelming and really hard to read these research papers, but to help alleviate that, I recommend highlighting terms that don't necessarily make sense. Afterwards, You should compile a list of questions and have a follow-up meeting with the professor to discuss those things that you highlighted so that you can truly understand the research project better. After all of the clarifications that you need, if that research project really resonates with you, let's say the results were really fascinating or the way that they conducted the research project used a really novel technique that you found to be really interesting and you wanna work on that novel technique in the future. If any part of those research projects from those papers resonated with you, ask the professor some more follow-ups to see what steps you can take to build upon what those other researchers in the past did. This is probably the easiest and the best way to create your own research project that's unique and that will also suit your interests. So to summarize, your mentor will give you a lot of suggestions for projects when you enter their lab, which may seem overwhelming, but i recommend that you take your time. Do not rush. First, start with posters, if possible, from previous undergraduate students who did a research project similar to the one that you may be interested in. Start with undergraduates because their work is likely easier to digest than someone with more experience who will use more advanced terminology, and try to reach out to that undergraduate to ask about that project in general. Next, read the papers, and do your best to understand the different findings of those papers and highlight things that don't make sense. Afterwards, follow up and meet with your professor to discuss how you can take that research project further once you've clarified everything that needs to be clarified. All right, that's coming up with the project. Now let's talk about how to actually get started with that project. At the beginning, it's important to understand the literature and to read as many papers as possible. But when you're reading these papers, I want you to take detailed notes on the key findings of that article that are related to your field and try to meet with the professor somewhat often, like weekly or bi-weekly, or during the lab meetings, to discuss next steps. And it's important that you can stay consistent with meeting with the members in your lab. The reason why it's really important to discuss the literature and to read papers is to truly understand how researchers in the past approached the problem similar to yours, so that you don't necessarily make mistakes that they did, and you can work as efficiently as possible when you're starting your research project, such as when you're doing the data pre-processing or data analysis, you can best understand what steps researchers in the past have used, and you can implement those steps in your research project if they have been successful. Next, I want to talk about defining expectations. And I purposely save this for last because I believe that this is most important. It is really important to define expectations for your research project before actually starting on your project. So, in those first few meetings with your professor that you have, it's really important to define expectations. And the reason for this is that you don't want to already be two or three months into your research project, and suddenly you're working on something that you didn't want to work on in the first place. Or, you don't want to be two to three months into your research project, and you're not meeting your professor's expectations, and they hold a grudge against you, for example. So, when defining expectations before you get started with your research project, keep in mind the who, what, when, where, and why with your research. I'll talk about each of these elements and increasing level of importance in my opinion. First is the where. Where will you be meeting with your lab? Can you stay in your dorm, for example if this is a computational project? Or do you have to be physically present in a lab? You don't want to miss too many lab meetings. Otherwise your professor may view you in a negative way. So make sure you define where you will be meeting. Next, when, how often will you be meeting with the members in your lab? As I said earlier, at the very beginning, I strongly recommend that you meet with someone of higher rank. So like a PhD student or a postdoc or your professor directly. I recommend you meet with them biweekly or weekly, but this may vary per lab. And as you go down the line, these expectations for how you will be meeting may change. So I want you to ask your professor or your mentor how often you will be meeting to discuss important findings, to discuss any questions, etc. When you're doing this down the line, you want to be proactive. So you want to be the one reaching out to other people to schedule appointments, not the other way around, because you don't necessarily know if they'll be reaching out to you especially because you're an undergraduate and they're, for example, a professor or a PhD student. Next is the who. When you're meeting with your professor to discuss research projects, ask them to see if there are other graduate students in the lab that are working on similar projects. This is important because you don't wanna be two to three months into your project and realize that there's someone else working on a really similar project and you haven't really been establishing a line of communication with that graduate student. Moreover, graduate students really want to mentor you They want mentoring experience for if they want to be professor in the future so you want to be reaching out to graduate students who are working in a similar research project as you are to see if they're willing to mentor you moreover the graduate student is likely going to be working on the research project full-time whereas the professor has a lot of different activities that they need to devote themselves to so if you can really reach out to someone who's working on your project full time they're likely to give you better feedback for uh, what to expect with the project and where to go next. Not saying the professor is not gonna be a good mentor, but the graduate student who's working full time on that project, devoting all of their energy on that project is probably going to be a better mentor for you directly. Obviously the professor is also your mentor, but for the project specifically, the graduate student or the postdoc who's in charge of that project is a great resource. And you should really ask your professor to see if there are graduate students that are working on your project. Moreover, if you devote enough energy into that project with the graduate student, they'll likely include you as a co-author for if they publish a conference paper or a journal paper. Next is the what. What exactly is your research project and what are the things that you will be working on? This is so important. Will you be conducting data analysis, pre-processing, pipetting, Or will you just be part of the lab marketing team or a dishwasher? Clearly define what you will be working on with your PI before you get started with your project. I know so many students who have gotten started with their research project and are doing something completely different from what they expected. So it's important to define your exact role. If you originally wanted to do research directly with the data, but find yourself being the lab's PR manager or being part of their marketing team, something more lower level, then that means that you didn't clearly define what your role would be in the research lab before you started. So it's important to clarify 100% crystal clearly what you will be working on in the project. And finally, why? why are you doing this project meaning what are your end goals for pursuing this project is your end goal something to add on your resume is it a poster is it a publication what is your end goal when you clearly define the expectation for why are you working with this project and your professor signs off on your end goal for the project that allows both you and your professor or the mentor that you are working with to create a tailored plan so that every step along the way helps you build up to your final end goal. And you clearly know what it is that you're working for and all the members in your lab that are relevant to your project also know this and also can help you reach this goal. So that's defining expectations for your research project. And remember to do this before you actually begin working on your project. Keep in mind the who, what, when, where, and why when defining expectations With your professor. First, where? Where will you be meeting? When? How often will you be meeting with members of your lab to discuss important research findings or questions? Who? Who will help mentor you in your research project and who will you be directly working with? What? What exactly is your role going to be in this research project? And finally, why? Why are you going to be doing this project, meaning what are the end goals? a poster, a location, for your resume, what is your end goal? If you've made it up to this point, thanks for sticking with me. This is part two of the Lab Life Podcast, where I talk about my weekly research findings and updates at the Boys Town National Research Hospital Institute for Human Neuroscience. During the first part of this week, I finally finished up pre-processing and analyzing the data within our practice data set so that for the second part of the week, when we received our large bank of potential research projects, I was able to focus on one that really intrigued me, and that was how transcranial direct current stimulation affects verbal working memory. So, if you don't understand either transcranial direct stimulation or TDCS or verbal working memory, you're in luck because I'll explain exactly what they mean. Let's start with working memory in general. Working memory concerns short-term memory that has not yet been encoded in our long-term memory. For example, if I read to you my phone number and had you repeat that phone number, you'd be able to do so because your brain exhibits working memory, but it hasn't necessarily encoded that in long-term memory, so you won't be able to necessarily repeat that to me a week later down the line. The way that most scientists currently understand working memory has to do with the Baddeley working memory model, which is named after the famous psychologist from the UK, Alan Baddeley. This working memory model consists of four components. First is the central executive, which is the CPU of working memory. This part of the brain, the central executive, exhibits selective attention to sensory information. So it determines what senses that we perceive gets taken into our brain. And afterwards, it gets to determine what gets stored into our working memory and what our brain just doesn't perceive at all. Finally, when it determines what gets stored, it will also determine a place to store that working memory either the phonological loop or the visual sketchpad, which are the second and third components. So the phonological loop has to do with handling auditory information. And specifically, it encodes auditory stimuli by cementing it in our memory, by playing it repetitively through our inner ear. So I want to do a quick experiment with this to just demonstrate how the phonological loop works. So I'm going to read to you guys six letters One after the other. And I want you guys to repeat those letters after me after a small break. So ready? The six letters will be R, X, A, F, N, T. All right. Can you repeat those back to me? If you said R, X, A, F, N, T, good job. You have good verbal working memory. Now, how did you encode that information? Well, you probably played those six letters a few times in your head, and you might have heard my voice saying those letters too. Well, that's your phonological loop in action. It will play those sounds over and over and over in your head to cement that in your working memory. The second place that central executive can send sensory information to to cement it in our memory is the visual-spatial sketchpad, which is exactly what it sounds like. This is the part of our working memory that's responsible for storing visual information. So take a good look at your surroundings right now. Now close your eyes. When you close your eyes, you can probably see a really quick one to two second snapshot of what you saw when your eyes were open. And that one to two second snapshot is the visual-spatial sketchpad. And finally is the episodic buffer. The episodic buffer is slightly separate from the other three components, and it's not very well known, but the gist of it is that it's thought to consolidate working memory into long-term memory. So if you can still remember those six letters that you just repeated to me in your head, can you do it? R, X, A, F, N, T. If you're able to do that, that was your episodic buffer in memory, and it stored that short-term memory into long-term memory. All right. So those are the four central components of the badly working memory model. So I'll be specifically working with verbal working memory or memorizing words, or in my case, letters. So the letter example that I just gave. All right. Now that we've talked about the components of working memory, let's talk about the stages of working memory and their associated neuro-oscillatory dynamics. So the first stage is encoding. And what encoding does is our brain taking in information and encoding it or translating it into something that our brains can understand. The way that this works is that we will see a strong theta synchronization in the primary visual cortex, which means that neurons, remember they fire at different frequencies, the neurons will start to fire at a theta frequency, which is around three to seven hertz. They'll start firing action potentials at that frequency in our primary visual cortex. And we will also see an alpha and beta desynchronization starting in the occipital cortex, which is the area in the back of our brain That's largely responsible for vision. We will see that desynchronization start in the occipital cortex and slowly move forward to the frontal cortex, which is responsible for our central decision-making. So this means that a lot of the neurons that were originally in our occipital cortex and slowly moving forward to the frontal cortex that were originally firing at alpha or beta frequencies, which are characterized by 8 to 30 hertz, will stop firing at that frequency, or they'll still fire that frequency, but like at different times. So they'll be desynchronized. And we can kind of interpret that to mean that these neurons from our occipital cortex to our frontal cortex get excited. Something happens to them, which we interpret as encoding information, that will cause them to stop firing an alpha and beta and instead fire at some other frequency. And that's them getting excited. We don't exactly know what frequency they will fire at, if they're even firing a frequency at all in the first place. But we do know that they get excited and they stop firing or they fire at different times in the alpha and beta frequency range. So that's the encoding phase. The second phase in working memory is maintenance. And what maintenance means is our brain trying to maintain what we just encoded. And it does this by blocking out all other sensory stimuli. Imagine that I just read to you those six letters, R, X, A, F, N, T. If you're trying to remember that, your brain is going to do its absolute best to block out all other stimuli so that you're hyper-focusing on R, X, A, F, N, T. And what we see in the maintenance phase is a strong synchronization in alpha frequency In the occipital cortex which basically means that neurons will suddenly be starting to fire at an alpha frequency at high synchrony in the occipital cortex and finally is the retrieval phase which is you repeating what you just encoded and what we see in the retrieval phase is a strong desynchronization of neurons across a bunch of frequencies ranging from theta all the way to beta in the parietal and occipital areas. So we see a strong desynchronization. We don't exactly know what new, syn- what new frequency they will fire at. What we do know is that they will desynchronize in frequencies from the theta to the beta range, so roughly from the 3 to the 30 hertz range in the parietal and occipital areas. So those are the three stages of working memory and their associated neuro-oscillatory dynamics. Now, we will talk about TDCS, Transcranial Direct Current Simulation, and how that affects working memory. So first, TDCS. How does it work? Well, what TDCS does is that the machine looks like a, like a cap. It looks like an EEG machine that you can just put directly on your head. And this cap will fire small electric currents, around 2 milliamps, into a specific region that we want to stimulate. Now, this may seem a little bit scary, but um, there's a lot of research that's been done on TDCS in the past, and very little side effects have been reported. So, what happens when we use TDCS on the brain, and how does that affect working memory? Now, this is really interesting. This is published in a paper from our lab, Koshi et al. And what they found was that there are two primary differences, one in the encoding phase and one in the maintenance phase. In the encoding phase they found that tdcs to the prefrontal cortex caused stronger and larger alpha desynchronization compared to no stimulation so I'll repeat that in the encoding phase when they stimulated the prefrontal cortex it caused stronger and larger alpha desynchronizations they interpreted this to mean remember during the coding phase, we normally see alpha desynchronizations, but they saw more alpha desynchronizations. They interpreted this to mean that our central executive is devoting more resources to storing information in both the phonological loop and the visual-spatial sketchpad to make it essentially easier to recall that information later, which I find is really interesting and that second difference that they found with stimulation versus no stimulation occurred during the maintenance phase and what they saw with the maintenance phase was that there was less alpha synchronization in the occipital cortex with stimulation compared to no stimulation so when stimulation was applied to people in the prefrontal cortex they saw less alpha synchronization in the occipital cortex And what they interpreted this to mean is that when we receive stimulation, our brain does not necessarily have to devote as much resources to blocking out external stimuli compared to if no stimulation was provided. And this, if you think about it, makes perfect sense. And the encoding phase, our brain devotes more resources to encoding that information in our brain so that we essentially have a clearer picture. When we have a clearer picture, that means that during the maintenance phase, we don't necessarily have to devote as much resources to filtering out other sensory information. Because we have that clearer picture, we are able to recall that what we just saw from our senses clearer, easier, so we don't have to filter out external stimuli as much. And those are the primary results of TDCS on the prefrontal cortex. working memory and this was really interesting so my specific research project has to do with TDCS and how does that affect working memory but we're stimulating specifically the parietal cortex and what makes the parietal cortex really special is that it contains this small region called the supramarginal gyrus that is responsible largely for phonological looping so theoretically, if we can make phonological looping more efficient, more effective, that allows us to encode information in our brains a lot easier, very similar to this uh, TDCS on the prefrontal cortex. But if we can make our phonological loop stronger and allow our brains to encode information a lot clearer, then perhaps that will improve our working memory, or at least make it so that we don't have to devote as much resources to blocking out external stimuli or retrieving the information during the retrieval phase. So that's going to be my project. TDCS, we're specifically stimulating the parietal cortex and seeing how that improves or affects working memory. Thank you for listening to the Lab Life Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, or whichever platform you are tuning in from. So long for now, and I'll see you next week.